Hey, hey, hey! I'm Weave's wacky side! They don't let me come out and play very often ever since I embarrassed everyone at the Andorian Peace Awards by wearing those tuxedo pajamas. <laughs> I can't wait for my buddy's lusty, busty, and condom hat to come back from this mission so we can plan Reva's impending nuptials to counsel her plunging knuckline. <laughs> I mean, Troy. Welcome to Reengage, everyone, <laughs> where we return to a sci-fi show we all have a strong connection to, Star Trek The Next Generation. We re-engage with this series one episode at a time and reconsider Star Trek from a new perspective. I am super excited to talk about episode five of season two, Loud as a Whisper, with the three of my wonderful friends. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy. How are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I am doing much better after that intro, my friend. Well done. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Kate, how are you? <laughs> I think I peed a little. That's <laughs> 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 <was> good. <laughs> and Eric Grant, how are you, sir? Uh, I'm doing well. I, I think I think one might assume that's a reference to Inside Out, but honestly, I think it, it harkens back to Herman's head. Uh, and uh, I'm 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 impressed. Well done. Thank you, sir. I was uh, I was a little bit of crusty, a little bit of uh, uh, Joey from Full House. I think was in my head <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> I was more talking about the the uh, the format of the having wacky guy represented. Yes, right. Oh, right. Herman's head, right? Where they're all the, they're controlling each other. Yeah, I get it there too. Well, we are excited to all be here and talk about this one, Loud as a Whisper. As I said, it premiered on January 9th, 1989. Not a lot of crazy events happening during this period, but some weird facts that I wanted to throw out there before we go to Kate for what was happening in the cultural world. This is the first episode airing in the year of 1989. So we're covering some of the end Huge of year. 1988 here. Uh, don't have an exact date for this, but around this exact time is when Europe and the United States were connected via a internet cable for the first time. Uh, oh, it was, went from Princeton to uh, Stockholm, Sweden, and is at the cusp of when the World Wide Web was about to be introduced uh, to everyone. So that's kind of crazy that that's just happened during the run of the show, even, that we can talk about that. We were we were seeing the future while living the future. That's true. In the past. Whoa. I'm sure I could, <laughs> I'm sure I could look it up, but I bet that cable's still there. <laughs> they, 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 they cut it a long time ago. Oh, well, uh, yeah. But it's still just lying there on the floor of the ocean. I feel like, don't they have, they've replaced that a couple of times. I feel like that's a new story, like every decade or so, where they're like, they've finally got fiber optic cable that goes between, you know. These things. Totally. I'm just curious whether they leave the old one. <laughs> it's next to the blue jewel that the uh, old lady from Titanic <laughs> drops down. Right. <laughs> On January 7th, 1989, uh, Emperor Akito uh, becomes the 125th emperor after the death of his father, Horahito. Big, big event uh, in the world. I definitely remember hearing about that, but I do not. Remember uh, hearing about, well, actually, no, I guess I do. On January 11th, uh, Lexus and Infinity luxury car brands were introduced for the first time. Oh, yeah. I remember that. You remember that? I was standing in line at McDonald's 
when I heard the news. <laughs> you were not. No. no, who the fuck knows? Yeah, I was living in Germany, land of uh, BMW and Mercedes, so there's no talk of Lexus. Even as being like the new, the new hotness that's going to take you over. I was excited about that, and then I learned about Saturns later in life, and got even more <laughs> excited about that. Then <laughs> they went away. So now I'm all Kia all the time. Kia's I got a Kia. They're adorable. Hamsters they're drive those. Nice. I still remember that hamster commercial with the one Hell that was yes. like super stone in it, right? Yes. Another thing I have in common. <laughs> <laughs> Go back and watch for sure. Uh, Kate, what was happening in the world of pop culture? So much in the world of pop culture. Uh, number one on the music charts was every rose has its thorn. Oh, yeah. Just like every night has its dawn. Just like what about every cowboys? cowboy sings his sad, sad song. Every rose has its thorn. Yes, it does. That was Poison's big, like, uh, ballad, right? Epic. Oh, yeah. On TV, Pat Sajak quit the daytime version of the series Wheel of Fortune for a CBS late night talk show. Uh, But he remained the host of the nighttime version. Um, I do not remember his late night talk show. I I, I don't know that that went very far. Uh, We'll count that. Maybe in the Magic Johnson uh, length of time, I bet, in terms of how long that was on the air. Uh, the number one movie was Rain Man, uh, which I believe I saw in theaters. Uh, what I did not see in theaters was that that same week, Universal Pictures released a cut of the 1985 film Brazil. But instead of 142 minutes, this version is 93 minutes long and turns the dark sci-fi satire into an uplifting romance complete with a happy ending. And it was given the nickname, The Love Conquers All Cut. And I want to see it. Like, simultaneously, like, have this sick desire to see it, but also I'm so frightened of what it must be like. (laughs) It's like the anti-director's cut, right? Because this was the time when, Blade Runner, uh, Ridley Scott's director's cut was just coming out and people were like, oh, it's actually better, you know, right? And this is the anti-version of that. Well, apparently this was the cut that that the studio wanted uh, and Terry said no. And when they asked him to do a a made-for-TV cut, he had refused. And to this day, as far as I can tell, nobody claims uh, credit for that ever being released. Um, the the studio was like, we don't know how that that version of the movie got released. <laughs> uh, and on in the theater world, on January eighth, Starlight Express closed at the Gershwin Theater after seven hundred and sixty one performances. They had that many, that many of that god awful show. At least some actors got paid for yeah. all those weeks, I, all those ankle breaks. I saw Starlight Express in London in the late 90s, and it was the first show we saw, uh, but we had just gotten off the plane that afternoon, and they said, don't go to sleep. Um, so we went to see a show instead, uh, not knowing that the it would be uh, sort of in the round, but, the tr- but opposite, the audience was in the middle, and the track was all around, and we were in the back row, and at one point I woke up and realized, 
the entire two rows of my college uh, students were all asleep in the back row whilst they were skating by singing their goddamn little hearts out. <laughs> so I still can't tell you what that musical is about. Uh, other than that, they tried to zhuzh it up with inline skates. That was their big answer to the revival was inline skates. Perfect. It's all because of that kid who went to go see the matinee uh, uh, of Starlight Express and then waved hi to Mikhail Gorbachev when he was in town <laughs> from a few uh, episodes ago. Nah, that's why I closed. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I remember. Right. But that's the pop culture world. Pop culture. Pop culture world. Jimmy, do you have any any trivia about this episode in general? I know I got one thing that I emailed to y'all before we started. Yeah, I got a few, and it's nothing that you touched upon. Uh, so Howie Seago, who's uh, uh, Eric, will talk about his career in just a bit. He actually met with the production crew during the uh, infamous writer's strike that has come up a lot in our our podcast to pitch the idea of a episode that is, in, is centered around a deaf character because he was a bit alarmed about this, the, the myth of the deaf, uh, deaf person. Um, and this episode came out of that talk uh, he had with them. And originally, uh, in, in the original cast, Reva, Reva was supposed to, um, after the chorus is, is murdered, he was supposed to learn how to talk overnight. Uh, and the day before they got into shooting, he brought up the idea of what if Reva actually stays on Solaris and teaches sign language into his great surprise uh, the entire production company was uh, enthusiastically supportive of that idea. And so they totally changed um, what happened with him and how he communicated after that. Uh, and I think the most fun bit of trivia is uh, Marnie Moseman, who is the wife of John Delancey, is in this. But she's the first of the Delancey crew to also join Star Trek after Q. Both of his sons also have been in the Star Trek franchise. Uh, Keegan, his first son, played uh, was on Voyager. And then his younger son, Owen, joined him for the Star Trek World Tour, which was a traveling exhibit of some of these Star Trek sets. Uh, and a little 30-minute um, movie that John Delancey wrote and produced uh, with the Q character to introduce this. And his son, Owen, played the character Lowercase Q. <laughs> so all of them have been uh, in the Star Trek universe. Wow. That's pretty there fascinating. fascinating Fun stuff. Star Trek trivia. <laughs> bum, bum, bum. I can't wait for the return of Q in Picard season two. Just, to, you know, what's going on in the real world right now. They've been teasing it a little bit. I think it might be a, few, a, a, a going into the past for season mm. two of Picard. There's an ep there's a poster that just was released today that has like highways in the shape of the Starfleet uh, logo that look like, you know, Los Angeles highways. <gasps> I haven't seen it yet. I know. So I don't know. It's that's that's my theory. I'm going with it. Uh, but Loud as a Whisper was written by Jacqueline Zambrano. Uh, I directed by Larry Shaw. Uh, again, it was first released in January 9th, 1989. But it was being filmed at the end of 1988, and that is when Star Trek V was being filmed in a studio right next door, or at least uh, for two months, the um, 
in-studio parts of that film were being shot. There's a lot of exterior shots in that film. It was directed by William Shatner. And I discovered that Will Wheaton, Wesley Crusher, uh, tells a fantastic story uh, of meeting William Shatner during the filming of this exact episode uh, and getting a little bit of a snub from him, uh, from William Shatner. Uh, it's really well told. Uh, there's a link to uh, this video as he performs it kind of in a 25-minute uh, one-man show with uh, accompaniment by Paul and Storm uh, uh, playing music in the background uh, for some comedic thrills that they play the theme songs on their vocoder or whatever that What's the name of that instrument where you breathe into it? It makes like synthesizer type sound. It's not harmonica. It's got it's no got a melodica. Tube. Melodica. Melodica. There you go. We'll go with that. Um, and it's very it's very adorable. Uh, but it is is canonically taking place during the shooting of this episode. So go take a look. Um, as far as guest actors go, Eric, I guess we should really just talk about uh, uh, Howie here. Well, we have Howie and we have the chorus, right? So yeah. let's start with uh, very briefly discuss the three of them. I know Kate is very much uh, a big fan of the guy who played um, uh, douche slash uh, <laughs> hornball. How right? dare you? The, so uh, that that guy um, did not have much of an acting career, honestly. He did this. Leo Damien is his name. He was a crowd member voice in The Last Temptation of Christ, did a co-star in Murder, She Wrote, this, and then became a Malibu realtor with Sotheby's and has been doing that for the last 30-some years. That, that feels like that fits. That tracks. Yeah, it does, right? It kind of does. Then we go to the scholar, Randy Oglesby, who is still going strong, most recently in WandaVision, uh, but is very, very important that we talk about his particular Star Trek bona fides, because not only is he in this one, and this is, of course, his very first uh, appearance in the Star Trek universe, but he's best known for his recurring role as Degra on Star Trek Enterprise. He's also known for his other Star Trek roles, including Treneld in Star Trek Enterprise episode Unexpected, the Miradorn twins, Akel and Rokel in Star Trek Deep Space Nine episode Vortex, Selaren Prin in The Darkness and the Light and as the telepathic alien cure in Counterpoint, a season five episode of Star Trek Voyager. This dude got around the Star Trek universe. Yeah. In addition to that, he's worked recently on Sharp Objects, Strange Angel, Godless. He plays Assholes Burning in Hell. He played Strom Thurmond in All the Way. <laughs> Lots of cops and doctors and preachers. A super fun career. Check him out. And then we get to Marnie Moseman, who Jimmy talked about briefly at the beginning. She owned the 90s with Ally McBeal, The Profiler, Days of Our Lives, Frasier, Picket Fences, mm -hmm. cartoon voiceover. And then she did a, a little role in What Women Want and uh, no longer uh, did film or TV after that. And that was uh, 2000 and done. She left uh, on a high note. She's like, I'm good. I'm done. Yeah. Fuck it. Out. <laughs> uh, but we need to talk more about Howie Sego. Jimmy talked about him as a as in addition to playing this incredible part, was also a uh, consultant uh, due to his uh, really high profile as a, a, a deaf activist in the in the country, as well as one of the uh, central figures of the National Theater for the Deaf. Uh, he's worked in theater all over the fucking world for people like Peter Sellers and David Byrne. 
Uh, he worked at the freaking Salzburg Festival, and he's been a member of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival's core company for over a decade. He was born in Tacoma right here and works in the Seattle theater scene all the time at Seattle uh, Children's Theater. He's worked multiple times, and uh, he, as recently as I think two years ago, did Friar Lawrence at ACT in their Romeo and Juliet. Huh. Uh, at uh, Oregon Shakes, he's played the wolf in Into the Woods, which I would have loved to have seen. I think he's such a good physical actor. That would be so interesting. Uh, and Marcellus, the Shapoopy guy in The Music Man, I think he can do anything. That is him. Uh, he, as I said, he's an activist and, uh, and artist uh, still working today. Big fan. And we'll talk about his performance when we get closer in here. Amazing stuff. Yeah. And I love that he was instrumental in the pitching of this episode uh, and and wanted to make it be a positive portrayal of, of people who can't hear and and how they are in sci-fi. And I love that that's pretty much the best takeaway from this episode of, 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 of that portrayal. We'll get to that uh, as we go through. Uh, so yeah, it opens with Picard playing with a 3D holographic display in his ready room one of only two times I believe this is shown in uh, Star Trek uh, Next Generation but apparently this is was supposed to be like a thing that they would go to back often uh, and he's trying to figure out a weird orbit of a planet Kate you were trying to see like I, I was how just, this I kept, like I, I wrote down right away why are we looking at this model this must be relevant later on and I kept waiting for it to come back and then it technically does at the end but mainly I feel like in an attempt to sort of bookend the episode because there's no real, uh, there's no metaphor in it. There's no sort of parallel. There's no sort of looking at the sort of parabola of everything and going, wait, this is like our current situation in the following ways. Like, I don't know. I just, maybe somebody was excited that they had the ability. They, they should have asked, should we do it? Not can we do it? <laughs> I thought it was very interesting that somehow the captain of a starship is going to be the one to solve this enormous astrophysics problem. Like he's, he's will hunting just, <laughs> they just kind of send it out to the whole universe. Somebody solved this. And he's like, no, he's going to put a board up in 10 forward. See if someone can solve it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, as soon as he just, he's, the only thing I could think of was that it was a continuation of last episode which had a little bit of downtime with uh, with with Jordy and Data, and then they get into trouble, obviously, with uh, uh, going to Sherlock Holmes land. Um, but I feel like it was like a little bit of that, like, oh, this is what ca captains do when there's a lot of time on the voyage and not much to do except, uh, what do you say? I had to untie that knot. <laughs> it's a knot I had to untie. And then they get off to Ramadis 3 uh, to pick up Riva, and uh, we don't learn too much about Riva right away, but we get pieces over the course of this uh, beginning. Kate, what's up? There's just a great line uh, when they're uh, on their way down to the transporter and yes. Riker is so worried about Picard going down to the surface and he just says, oh, cluck, 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 number one. And it just gives me such joy. It's so funny because it's, it feels like a, a, a nod to what we talked a lot in the first season about how Riker needs to uh, be the away team leader and have that sense of responsibility. And I feel like this was the first kind of dismissal of it at this point where they're like, do we need to do this anymore? It's silly. Uh, and then don't, uh, when they get to the transporter room, you get to see 
O'Brien. Uh, he doesn't have any lines in this episode, but you get to see him a couple times. Uh, Worf is a little bit nervous about this mission as well. I just think it must suck to have a coworker that can sense when you're not into your job. Because <laughs> Troy totally calls him out in front of everyone. You're feeling anxious and, and worried about this, aren't you? So, fuck you. I was keep I was doing my job. <laughs> no one has to know. I'm chill. I'm chill. Uh, they dismiss all that and they beam down to an empty room. And that's the end of the, 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 the <laughs> teaser. It's kind of a poor setup. I feel like some of what we just talked about was just to give some kind of drama before they we meet the chorus. So we get the credits rolling and the first thing uh, we see... Uh, in this new well no the the setup with Worf is because Revis did all the negotiations to bring peace to amongst the Klingons in the Federation so it's to set him up as he's done something already gigantic and he's obviously very old because that happened decades and decades ago oh yeah ago. I didn't even think about that <laughs> yeah so, he's aged they well they kind of retcon that too because I think I mean basically Star Trek 6 kind of says like no this, that was Reva didn't do anything it was all kind of laid right, right. back then so it was uh, there were some father. of the writers who said like that was th- that was why they were trying to they were trying to sh- show a little bit of history of how uh, the Klingons and the Federation might have uh, reached a peace which canonically they have not even considered at all in this series yet still um, yes and so then we have the introduction of Reva he comes in He's Likes got a nice w- white robe, right? Is that what you're going to say? The nice crisp yeah. robe and the big bushy red-headed beard and the big hair. And he stares at Picard, at at, at Worf, and at Counselor Troy. Ugh. What did you think about that introduction, Eric? I mean, it's, it's the way every male alien has to be introduced at this point, right? I, I feel like everybody who comes in with any sort of flowy sleeves, <laughs> a little bit of definition in the pectorals, uh, looks at everybody, stops for a second at Data, cocks their head to one side, and then does a double take when they notice Troy over in the corner and immediately walk over. And that's just how everybody meets Deanna Troy. Jimmy, what did you think about his deadpan? Uh, yeah, it didn't come across to me as deadpan because I, I don't know how a deaf person reacts in, in those situations. So I wasn't, I wasn't reading as, oh, this is a deadpan thing. I was reading as this is a person who doesn't uh, necessarily use their own expression because they've learned to uh, uh, express with these other entities behind them. And, and I was way more fascinated by that. Like it, as soon as that was introduced... All I could think about from that moment to the end of the episode was the chorus. And I wanted I wanted everything to be about the chorus and didn't know about the chorus. And I wanted to follow them everywhere. <laughs> well, and I, I didn't uh, so, particularly care for the dead. And I do think it's deadpan. I, I think he, he tried very hard not to show pretty much any uh, um, emotion uh, as Reva while the chorus was still alive. And then they had, uh, you know, which we'll talk about later that nice change where he becomes very emotive and very, you know, you, the frustration of not having this method of communication he's been leaning on is gone. I just would have liked to have seen a different portrayal of the earlier one. I, I feel like a lot of times uh, there are performances that are still as still as this one is, and you can literally see nothing. Mm. And, uh, it's incumbent upon the, the, 
director of photography to do something then. <laughs> the hands are tied here. So I just felt like the performance until the chorus goes away is is pretty static and not interesting at all. Yeah. But I do like the, of course, it's it's that way on purpose to juxtapose with the later performance, but I don't think that's effective. Yeah, this beginning part is tough to watch just to see. It's almost like he's asserting his identity with each one of them first, studying them, doing that whole shtick. And then Picard keeps trying to do his diplomatic stuff. I'm like, I'm Jean-Luc Picard, the USS Enterprise. And then he puts up his hand and he's always, he's very rude and pompous and also stoic at the same time and not giving any emotion. And it's, you see it right from, from, from jump here as uh, he puts up that hand and then the chorus enters and you see the three of them. Uh, and it's the weird staging a little bit for me, like where they stand, they have a platform that they're there for uh, uh, to be there. And uh, it's, it's, it's this whole opening scene is all about just figuring out how this presentation is going to work. And it's all about protocol and how uh, they act. But then we get these introductions to these three parts of Riva's soul. Uh, the first one that's introduced is, uh, who I refer to as Condom Hat in the intro, uh, but he is the 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 leader, basically the the judge. Uh, is that how you kind of interpreted his the introduction scholar. there? The, yeah. the, the scholar, scholar. Yeah. yeah, but also the dreamer wants to do things, you know, where he can go into the future and 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 build something better. I sort of love that the scholar and the artist are the same brain. Because that oftentimes those are separated because uh, mm. we think of, you know, artists as dreamers who have no touch with reality. So how could they be the scholars? But we're smart, too, sometimes, y'all. That's just people trying to build a wedge <laughs> between natural allies. And then you get this weird transition from when the scholar is rambling and then he gets cut off by the lover. I'm sorry, I think you mean Whoa. the anarchy of lust, as he also introduced himself? Christ. I don't know why, I do not know why they didn't give him a French accent based on... I am the anarchy of lust. Yeah, like that, it, it desperately needed that. Yeah, and he's also the warrior. He also is the dude. Oh, that's why they didn't give him a French accent. <laughs> <laughs> But from, uh, you know, the start, I don't like this this aspect of Reva's personality at all. At all. I was so skeeved out by Reva at the beginning. just And like, like very viscerally unhappy about the whole thing. I just, uh, yes, every, every spidey sense within me was going because Deanna <laughs> also seemed uncomfortable uh, in the beginning. And I even wrote down, I'm so skeeved out, but I think... It's maybe because of the guy who speaks for him mm. being so smarmy because um, there's something about. And then as soon as that guy went away before he even died, but when he goes away in the dinner, in the date. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, I love Riva. Yes. More Riva. Yes. Riva Troy. I stand. Yes. This is uh, I ship <laughs> this. But yeah. And I don't. Gross. What do you think it is? Because I, I have that same reaction too. Do, and I'll open this up to uh, Jimmy or Eric too. Like, what do you think? Is it the fact that we know that he's supposed to be the lust person, and then therefore we already know that we're going to have a judgment against him, or is it just the actor sucks and didn't really pull off <laughs> a, a you know a, a flirty thing that felt charming and just felt skeevy, or is it the fact that we know he's lustful, having these thoughts because they tell us when this guy talks. 
He's talking about that. I mean, it wouldn't have seemed as creepy if you have Danny DeVito out there going, <laughs> and also the <laughs> wanton chaos of lust. <laughs> and also the warrior. would be kind of charming, yeah. But you've cast someone who would be cast for 10 years later in various versions of Sleeping with the Enemy or Enough or like the the type of actor that you have chosen is not the type of actor that lives happily ever after with someone. It's the type of actor uh, who has real trouble with the law later in the episode. <laughs> so I'm skeeved out too. Uh, and then we get the final uh, aspect of his personality who, who, even though Troy says the lust person doesn't talk as much, I feel like she didn't really talk enough in this episode either. If she's supposed to be the person who blends the two of them together and is is the peacemaker, that she doesn't talk a lot during this episode, unfortunately. The gender politics of making her the peacemaker <laughs> is really fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Agreed. No, no, stop. Make sure you're agreeing, you guys. <laughs> Um, we get this weird moment also when Picard is trying to figure out what's going on and he addresses the chorus uh, and Reva's pissed. He says, Stop speak to me uh, in the scholar's voice. That was the moment where I didn't because I wasn't skeeved out about um, the however the lust anarchy had had <laughs> yeah anarchy had uh, addressed uh, Troy. I might have just missed that, but um this moment I was like, oh, well, that's a dick. Like these are people. They're not they're not voice boxes. Um, why wouldn't I look at them? They're looking at me and they're talking. And um, so that's when it really I wanted to see so much more because I was like, oh, I gotta know more about what this real this relationship is between them. Are they like automatons? Like, will I see something of them outside of Reba? And I, 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 all I could think about from that moment on was what is the process in the, in the life of the chorus? Uh, for me, that, that specific moment I, was, I thought was cool as hell because I think every 10 years or so, the hearing world, uh, those of us who uh, might not pay as much attention as we should, get the rules read to us. You know, there, there's, a, there's a scene where we are where it is explained to us that when we're speaking to a deaf person who uses an ASL interpreter, that we should hold eye contact with the person we are speaking to and not the interpreter. And while the reaction is this over-the-top thing, three minutes later, Picard comes in and gives the same direction to the rest of the crew to emphasize it to us, probably, uh, which is one of the things that happens when a, a you know, non-deaf person, a hearing person who's not uh, necessarily uh, in that world writes an episode probably mostly for other hearing people they put stuff like that in there because they're like oh i didn't know that and i assume that's kind of what happens here you see it t 10 years later in west wing there's a similar uh, interaction you see it every few years and it's a useful thing uh, i i know at 12 this was the first time i'd heard the rule you know um so i love that little there was also scene. a slew in the Creepy. 80s of um uh, you know, very special episodes of uh, sitcoms. I feel like that that also were instructive in that way. And Kathy Buckley mm -hmm. came to mind too while watching this. The uh, stand-up comedian who is deaf and mm -hmm. very openly talked about all of this uh, in a way. Uh, and I almost that's almost wish there was a, a comedic element to <laughs> these uh, 
this chorus because it felt so earnest all the time. And I think part of that was why put turned me off by this form of communication and everybody was a little bit kind of uh, tough by it because there was no self-deprecation uh, that so many of us use to navigate social mores like this. And when they got to the date, we start to see him loosen up a little we bit. See arm and we see the communication and we see all that happen from, a, from a, the face of a very expressive, uh, talented right. actor. Jimmy, what'd you got? Uh, well, I was I was gonna say it's the it's there's a fulcrum moment later on where really he's the actor is choosing to I think withdraw so that there's a more dramatic reveal of who he could have been because later on he does say I was pompous but as Eric is as Eric was saying speaking just then it does strike me that it could have been played uh, he could have been using sign the whole time. And still have the voice who's like, I'm I'm talking to you through this psychic connection. And I feel here's his emotion with the words that he's portraying. And um, we could have seen a little bit more of the actor uh, come through. And it, it really was a wall. And I think on purpose so that he could have that easy transition of, and now I'm not pompous. Totally. So, um, yeah. But he's such right. a good actor. Like I, I would have liked to have seen, you know, three, three ways of yeah. it. yeah yeah so during the scene they also figure out that uh, uh, uh troy is an empath as well that's where their connection goes even farther past that first look uh and uh, a lusty guy is is connected in there uh they go up to the bridge go ahead jimmy before we go to the bridge i think that's why i wasn't skeeved out because i think he picked up on that immediately it wasn't like oh you're hot it was there's a connection beyond like he there's an empathic connection there. And that's how he communicates with the chorus is there's an empathic connection yeah. with them. So when this other person comes in and immediately there's a connection of you're not like them. And I think that's what I got <laughs> rather than the <laughs> look the at whole, Kate's face. Well, there's so many signals. Because, I mean, he didn't well, do there's so many signals from Picard. Like, I think that's the thing that really kind of cements it for me, because <laughs> it's not just us as the audience. Even Picard is like, seriously, dude. Like we're in the middle of a diplomatic thing, and you're skeeving on her. You think he'd be used to it, Riker standing right next to him? I know this guy's seen skeeving a lot. <laughs> you uh, see it up. Close. Speaking of Riker, they get back up to the bridge, uh, and Riker <laughs> is weirded out from the beginning uh, and doesn't know how to act. And Picard, kind of, you're right. Uh, you mentioned this earlier, Eric. Kind of immediately said, "Like <laughs> this guy's skeevier than me." <laughs> <laughs> Talk directly to them, uh, you know, they're interpreters. Uh, and then there's a couple of really nice moments. The one I want to highlight, though, is with Jordy, uh, who is not even introduced. Reva just goes up to him and does that touching of the heart moment. Uh, couldn't find it with Data and was like, that's why you're, you're, you're a weirdo, uh, Data. You're different than everyone else. Um, but, he, but Reva puts his hands up on either side of Jordy's visor. And they have this really nice conversation while holding hands up. So it's, it is a bit odd. Uh, but about how their disabilities uh, don't define them and are, are, are an aspect of them and they don't aren't something to be fixed or, uh, uh, you know, changed in any way. It's just it is their identity and it, be, it makes them, uh, you know, who they are. And I really appreciated that because I've been you know working with a lot of disabled people talking about Dungeons and Dragons and how that, you know, can help them become different people throughout things and just seem to echo so much of, uh, you know, my peers in that community and how they're dealing with issues like this to this day. And it's really nice to see this from 
1989 just kind of affirming you know those those uh uh messages here the well one thing real quick that scene in particular impacted um uh lavar burton because he had been pushing since the first season to get his eyes fixed as a character because he wanted to be more expressive with his eyes and this scene with um with Riva really brought it home to him. He said that not only is this an important thing um, for this character, but it's important for the dis- disabled world at large. And he really backed off that and he did not get that visor taken off until we went into the theatrical releases right. years later. Um, and then there's a great line here before in this scene at the very end, after everybody leaves, I, I don't know. Are we going to go to the next go for scene? It. Yeah. What's we- that? What's the line? Yeah, well, I love it's it's when the chorus when Reva leaves, and so now the chorus are by themselves. And um, what's her name? Harmony is that what they call her? Uh, she says encumbrance. We have become an encumbrance during these moments. Uh, and right, and so now they're by themselves. And they're like, oh my god, they do. They talk. They are people outside of Reva, and they have personalities, and they probably have lives. And I just I. Again, I just like I glommed on to this. Is like I really want more chorus by themselves, and I wish uh, it, it would have been at the cost of Reva. But I really wish they would have been. The story would have been like Reva died, and the chorus <laughs> had to like. Oh, that would have been a learn to live and, and communicate because I that story was fascinating. That is me. fascinating, and That's I it. I think this exactly. is the only time <laughs> where the chorus speaks when Reva's not present, and they're basically just like, uh, "Can we get somewhere to sleep?" <laughs> right. We just, I, just, we gotta go to bed. I wanna unpack for just a hot second the fact that he leaves behind his intellect when he goes on dates. <laughs> That's a thing. That's a thing. <laughs> yeah, he Amazing. just needs his skeevy wingman. Uh, <laughs> Ooh. Uh so yeah, he and, and they leave this because Reva overtly asked, Can Counselor Troy show me around the ship and you know take Ugh. me to places? And that's where Riker and Picard are like, can you get a load of this guy? Ah. Uh, but they allow him to do it. Uh, and they have another uh, connection, uh, Troy and Reva discussing things. And this is where we do see the kind of flirtatiousness a little bit. The writing is not good. The joke he tells is not even really a joke, but he laughs at it anyway. But uh, you, you do get a little bit more of a humanness. And the weirdness that the, the, the thing about this thing that I want to talk about is how Troy immediately is like, can we get rid of that guy? When is he going to get out of here? The yes. interpreter. Well, that's right after he says the line, until we find our own method of communication. And I believe I went yuck out loud because it just skeeved me out so hardcore. I would want to get rid of that guy too. Is that the, is that the language of love? Is, he's that, is that what he's trying to say? Uh, you know, a little, little Morse code in, under the sheets, as it were. <laughs> Dot, dot, dash, dash, if you know what I mean. <laughs> SOS. Or he, he could have been talking about the three minutes it took Troy to learn <laughs> In fact, not even three minutes. She literally learned it as it was happening. Like, it was instantaneous. As he said something, he's like, oh, yes, that sign means this deep thought. I am with you entirely, Reva. Extraordinary. One of our other talents we didn't know about. Well, yes, we'll get to the the, the uh, very comedic uh, sign language scene with Data in a second. Uh, but uh, they go to the briefing, 
Well, Troy too. She was reading his sign language. Oh yeah, no, immediately. No, I know. I just think the, the, the comedy part yeah. of the data gets to is is, is so oh, good. Oh yeah. Um, they go to the briefing uh, in the observation room, and this is where we see the most pompous form of Riva. Uh, not even arrogant. He's like, I always figure out something. I'm gonna do it. Let me guess. There, these two uh, races that I'm being brought to. Uh, have a uh, you know ceasefire and peace talks about it's about some some asset isn't it it's probably just about some piece of land it always is the same old shtick and I just got to figure out a way for them to talk to each other and I'm going to do it no problem and Picard is basically like so all this stuff that we prepared for you you don't care and they're like nope peace out and uh, he leaves, and this is the weird thing part. He leaves, and then the chorus kind of leaves, kind of piecemeal afterwards. And Harmony says, "Thank you, you know, see you later, bye bye." As Picard is trying to, uh, you know, figure out how to just close the meeting. What is this? Another just big setup, as we've been talking about, about how he could be as awful as possible, so that he has a nice dramatic turn. I think so. I mean, it's playing the opposite. Make it. I mean, it's just written in, right? He, he's doing, he's written to disregard everything and not needing it so that when uh, things turn, we can see him struggling. And I actually thought that his point, like it pompously said, but his point was was pretty spot on in terms of it's mm. been so many years, like it's been centuries, right? Isn't that what they determined? It had been forever, that there, whatever that original thing was, nobody remembers that anymore, and that to me was a little bit of like, I've I've done this before, um, maybe some earned confidence in that in that instance, um, but the way he ends the meeting himself, you know, you're right that he's pompous about it, but I think his point is interesting. It's a little bit Michael Jordan, right, where you're yeah. like, you know, you're a dick, but you, you kind of deserve it. <laughs> Well, and I mean, it's also a very popular form of uh, international diplomacy as well. Mm. I mean, in that in the last five years, again, after seeing it, you know, uh, <laughs> cyclically throughout history, that a lot of people don't prepare for big things like that. And they just walk in and wing it. And they think that it's just as valid as sending in the experts. So I, I think it was an interesting commentary that way as well. Are you saying he's a lazy dungeon master? A little bit, yeah. yeah. Cause I, I can, I can, that's language I can, I can understand. Right. He's just like, I'm, I'm an improv. I go in and I have enough skills where I just know I, I'll get the, the cues from the crowd and I'll know exactly how to make people laugh. And <laughs> it's like jazz. Um, so, uh, his exit line from this, uh, from this, uh, conference room was I got a dinner engagement. He goes to the dinner engagements with Troy. And this is where the, the, uh, sign language learning really comes full circle and they have a full-on conversation where at first you're right, Troy's like trying to guess what the signs are, but then after a while she's just vocalizing what he's doing with very simple signs uh, and uh, and gets that on. There, There is a connection here. Does it? And it's the best once Skeevy Dude leaves. No, like... Yeah, there's one. Point. Oh, I was just gonna say, Sorry, like go I said, I I completely like am into the relationship after that point. Like in terms yeah. of the the mutual uh, uh, respect and and sort of like it turns into a respectful like back and forth, uh, and less of a a leery up and down as it were. Um, <laughs> uh, 
But I, uh, oh shit, I was going to say something and it was going to blow all of your fucking minds. It was a mature. Yeah, I, I know, right? I was going to be like, podcast done. Boom. Boom. Well, let me follow up with some C ah. material. When they were doing the sign language, there was one point where he's, he starts slowly repeating his signs. And I thought that was a little bit of akin to a person uh, saying something louder to a person who doesn't speak the same language. <laughs> so it, I don't understand you anymore because you're doing it slower. Um, so there you go. There's my big right? it's, it's, it's like uh, uh, charades where you're like, you're just doing the same motion over and over again and no one is guessing. <laughs> right. Try something new. <laughs> exactly. Uh the ceasefire at Saleus 5 is not happening anymore. There is a lot of laser activity down there, Worf tells us. They get to talk to uh, the Salarians or the Salaeans, um, and they are not very attractive looking. I'm not going to mince any words there. I was going to say that they already have something in common, and it's massive eye wounds. Like, because... Two guys yes. on both sides are have massive eye gouges out, and can't you just Giant use that as your something. point of contact to start with? I could be a diplomat. I swear they ran out of money because of that little graphic they did for Picard <laughs> in the beginning, and they're like, this is the only mask. I want for guys. everyone. <laughs> I mean, I'm tempted to say they look like Wookalars, but I'm pretty certain none of Nobody in listening or anything else has ever seen uh, the movie Private Eyes with Tim Conway and Don Knotts, where they are searching <laughs> for the mythical creature Wookalar. So I recommend it, and now I'll go back to being quiet. These are Wookalars. God bless you. I'm pretty sure they just took the Wookalar <laughs> costumes uh, from the Paramount vault and were like, just put them on. This is what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a weird conference call thing here where another uh, the other faction breaks into communications. No one seems concerned about that, but that just happens. Uh, and there's this weird line, where is Riva? Everyone needs Rima. And, you know, he's he's trying to eat a very delicious salad with Troy. That's my favorite shot. It goes back to him. And he's holding a little a little spray like a of, or something. of lettuce. And he's so disappointed. He's like, shit, I had such a great point I was going to make with this plant. Yeah, dude, he got blocked. Got plant totally blocked. got blocked. He got Solera um, blocked. He comes up to the bridge and true to his word, he immediately says three sentences and they're all like, oh, thank God. Thank God Reva's here. Uh, and everything seems to get cleared up. It's the one moment where I'm like, they actually show him doing his job really well. Mm-hmm. Right. Like he's able to say a few things that I think is like, be brave in coming together for these peace talks. You know, your warriors be brave in this. And I was like, oh, OK, that's a really good way to, you know, kind of challenge these two factions to 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 change. Um, they beam down or they talk about where they're going to beam down to the uh, thing. Did you have something to say, Eric? No, I was waving at the fire truck that just drove. <laughs> I'm in Gig Harbor, Washington. Maybe that was uh, uh, our, our our friend here from the you know going by. He's gonna go ride along on the on the thing. Yeah. Um, the they make a big deal about where they're gonna find this site uh, to have this peace thing, and it's really meaningless uh, to me. I don't really get why it's so important where it is with the things, but they do it. They get down there. They talk about beaming in some furniture with Jordy. <laughs> Another really unimportant conversation that doesn't do much other than fill time. 
And then they don't even beam exactly where yeah. he wants to go. They have to beam to like the the foyer of the hilltop <laughs> and then walk through the columns. Yeah. For some reason, they don't I have... kept imagining Aslan was going to come to get <laughs> sacrificed and we were all going to learn an allegory. Do not quote the deep magics to me. Uh, yeah, and then the two factions show up. Uh, there's a pair of them on each side. You know they're on different factions because they're wearing different clothes. Re- well, and they two of them walk in like hunched down. Their their knees are bent and their backs a little one, with the gun, and the backs a little hunched over. And they kind of hobble in like they're Caliban or something. And uh, uh, so they immediately are being played like they're not as advanced as they are. I mean, they have laser guns for goodness' sake. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but they're they're hopping in there like little monsters, and then the face to match it was uh, they weren't the best of the aliens. <laughs> I think I think though uh, that when we get laser guns, some of those laser guns will end up in the hands of people who move like that, uh, especially um, with the lax uh, gun control regulations in this lovely country. We're going to have some pretty heavy weaponry in the hands of people who um, can barely down the it's stairs. True. Yep. I hope if they're photographed there, somebody has the decency to tell them the standard. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, I mean, lasers will just mess up your eyes, which is what I think happened to them. Um, one of them, uh, <laughs> they don't know who Reva is again, which is true of everybody basically in this, uh, during this episode. He comes out, there's a bit of a conversation. One of the faction members shoots at Reva, says, no, peace can't happen. Riker is very smart and gets Reva out of the way. And we get one of the most terrifying death animations in this episode, this series to date for us right now, including the blowing up of the uh, uh, brood mother, uh, you know, in uh, end of last season. Their bodies evaporate skin inward. So you see their skeletons for a fraction of a second and they're all like frozen in this uh, like they know that what's coming. What did you guys think about this this animation? It was really disturbing when I saw it. Yeah, I thought it was bad. I didn't think it was disturbing. I was like, this is lowbrow. And I was really amazed that one beam hit all three <laughs> of them. Like it it was connected, so it must have traveled through them sonically, or because they were connected psychically, they somehow all got <laughs> He had a know, he had a beam spreader on his it was a beam spreader, right? They, they have been at war for centuries, so they've really perfected how to take out a I, crowd. I thought it was badass. I was like, fuck yeah. And it reminded me a little of um, uh, uh, like Clash of the Titans, those mm. those skeletons um, that, that come to fight. Mm. Um, I don't Very know. Fast. I just thought it was kind of bad, like out of nowhere and, and reminded me of the explosion of the broodmother where I was like, that seems unnecessary. Hooray! <laughs> 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 yeah it, i mean it's certainly not you know up to uh optical standards of today but i thought it was a pretty well done uh representation of of something that was horrific from the get-go and you really got you really felt their their deaths um and then they immediately beam back out oh, well no the the faction member uh who witnessed that uh said no you're a traitor and then immediately shoots and kills his brethren to prove the point that he's like, no, he didn't speak for me. I'm going to commit murder so that you know that uh, he didn't speak for me. 
That's how you do it. Um, and Riker, rightly so, freaks out and says, let's beam us back immediately. They go back to the Enterprise. And then the uh, Solarians are there left being like, no, we need you, Reva. Like, you know, shaking fist up to the sky. Uh, and we are back up on the Enterprise and we're freaking out. Poor Reva is unhappy. He starts signing uh, frantically. He's very emotive, as you said, Eric, as soon as this happens. Uh, but I'm I, I, the only part about this scene that I wish was different was that there's no sorrow in here. He's just angry. And I wish there was some mixture of other emotions in here uh, to kind of help it out. What did, what did you think about this shift in his performance, uh, Eric? I thought it was wonderful. I, you know, I, I'm not demanding kind of anything other than what he did. I, I, I thought it was fantastic. The, um, the sudden loss, you know, I, I it, it's dumb. And I, I talk about it all the time because I'm, I'm kind of in the middle of uh, picking uh, groomsmen and stuff like that. But my, my best friend was murdered a few years ago. It was so super duper surprising. And like, you know, the whole five stages of grief, starting with anger, <laughs> you know, you're starting with denial and anger, like you couldn't deny it. It's right there. And I mean, to be stuck on anger as long as he was in that scene, I, I thought was really, in addition to being like somewhat realistic, like I, he's such a good actor that it never felt like one note to me. It felt pretty uh, versatile kind of through. I, I, I felt that he didn't stay and, and certainly I was impressed by physically what actors tend to do when they're angry is too much movement. And I didn't feel that from him at all. I thought it was constrained but explosive. I thought it was just terrific. Just a great performance. Did you, did you appreciate Picard laying on hands in that moment, uh, not being able to communicate and being frustrated, and then just grabbing Reva's face? Give and, me a connection. And Let's yelling at him. I thought that was right really strong. Here. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, because you, you see him frustrated and you see the anger. And the last thing that he had said was, no matter what happens, don't don't react. So the question I had at the beginning is, is who's he pissed at? Mm. Is he pissed that somebody did something like does he think that, you know, somebody jumped the gun? And then you find out that he's he's it's self-recrimination. And I buy that anger. I buy that self-hatred of I. I did this. I'm mm. the one that's responsible. I thought it, I, I'm with you, Eric. I thought it was beautiful. That makes a lot of sense. Um, very quickly, Data learns sign language. Uh, <laughs> this is uh, one, one of a great sci-fi trope of, of, of the android being able to learn very quickly. Uh, and they do a whole breakdown of five languages that might be what Reba is communicating in since they don't uh, necessarily know what it is. And uh, he, he, he picks it up very quickly. And then we go into uh, Pulaski and Troy realizing that they can't fix Reba. They basically have a, a whole scene of being like, there's nothing we can do. He can't, you know, you know with P Pulaski's scene with Jordy, um, uh, which we, get to, we haven't even gotten to that scene yet, uh, but that uh, Pulaski's ability to, to, to help in this situation is, is nil. And Troy is like, I can't give him confidence. He's lost all his confidence. It's very something you can't do. And then Data comes in and has this very comedic scene where he's like, I've learned a sign language. Let me tell you all this thing. And he, you know, goes by rote. <laughs> yeah. 
It's fantastic. It's just so precise and ridiculous. And he's trying, I mean, not even trying, like he doesn't have a soul, so he's not adding any soul to it. It's, it's beautiful. And that's, that's, I love in that scene Pulaski's response. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. No feeling, no remorse. None that can do. Yes. Uh, so they, you know, these are two people walking along the beach at sunset. Um, they go to Riva. Picard's actually jazzed about it. He's like, let's go talk to Riva. We're going to do it, my old boy. And he like kind of almost escorts uh, Data out of uh, the ready room to the observation lounge. Uh, Riva uh, says that he can, you know, immediately starts to communicate uh, through sign and does what you uh, had already mentioned, uh, Kate, saying it was his fault. Yeah, that this, that's why he was as angry as he was, was because he didn't believe that anyone would be able to do this to the great Riva. Uh, and you see his pomposity kind of just wash away as he realizes his great hubris is what caused the death of his, his friends. Yeah. I recommend you, I mean, I spent a lot of time looking at videos of uh, Howie, you know, as he is all over the internet, uh, both as a performer and a kind of theater teacher and lecturer and, and um, explainer of what, what theater can be in, in the deaf world and in, in the hearing world combining with the deaf world to, to tell stories as well. I really recommend you go out and just watch this guy talk. It's, it's, just he has so much wonderful stuff to say about art and humanity and he's a really neat dude and a wonderful performer so uh, give give him a look if you get a chance yeah absolutely um i, I love that he is still this advocate uh uh in real life for um uh, uh for deaf people and, and all people who are disabled um through the course of this conversation though he chickens out he at reva just basically says i, I can't do it i will not uh, uh, there's there's no way that this interpreter of data can replace my chorus. It's pointless. Take me back home. You know, my job here is done. And uh, every, Picard and Troy are just like, that sucks, dude. You're, a lot more people are going to die. What the hell? That guilt kind of uh, lingers there for a while. Uh, and then we have the scene with Pulaski and Jordy. And this feels like an insert scene Uh and it describes some of the things that you were talking about, kind of plants the seeds uh, for what Jimmy was talking about, about uh, there's a potential cure. Pulaski's like, I've done it before. I've done people, I, I've been able to to, uh, to help people who have had this exact same. I love it. Right. But we can't, we can't blow past. He says- It's impossible. It's impossible. And it's from the standpoint of, I don't think it's impossible. I've looked into this. It's impossible. And she's like, I've done it twice. <laughs> Big universe. <laughs> Just drops it. In case you didn't know, I've grown eyes before twice. <laughs> pretty, easy. pretty easy. I have my own <laughs> What size are you? Yeah, and I love uh, Jordy's reluctance here. He, I mean, that line where he says, "I've been giving up a lot." That that really hit home for me because I was like, "Yeah, I mean, this is a big thing." And and Pulaski's bedside manner here kind of sucks. I mean, it's kind of her shtick in a way, but she's like, "I'm going to tell you, it's terrible." You shouldn't do it, but also, why are you hesitating? Let's do it. It's this weird contrast in her in her character, and I think, in some ways, we're still trying to figure out exactly what she is uh, and how she kind of reacts to situations like this. But the the big takeaway for me was just like, man, I think Pulaski could have been a lot kinder in this scene. 
Well, it's a big risk. That's all. I, I didn't take it as she wasn't kind. It was like, I can't guarantee you it's going to work. It, it could go wrong, but I've done it, <laughs> as I said, twice <laughs> successfully. Nobody else has done this. Uh, and, you know, only a 20% reduction in which that's what you're referring to, George. It's like, that's a big loss. 20% loss of what I get now is when you've looked at the world that way your whole life and can see everything that, you know, see things that nobody else can see is yeah, for him. He's given up a lot. And I don't think at this time they uh, had adopted his new tactic that you had mentioned before, Jimmy, about how the scene with uh, Reba changed his thing because he was pushing, as you said, to have his eyes be be fixed throughout the course of these seasons so that he could use his eyes and his acting because he thought that was a really good big tool. Um, but they many, many fans say that this scene was left in just because that's they were planting the seeds for what they were going to do in the future. And then this filming experience ended up changing that. And so it's this weird little legacy of like, could this happen? And then it's not really closed until uh, the, the feature films uh, at the end of the 90s there. Troy goes to Reba and then says, I'm going to take up uh, your task because you don't want to do it. And can you give me some advice? And he, they, they have this long conversation about whether it being was a trick or if there's some technique that he has going forward um, and ends up uh, basically convincing him that he should do it. I love she she plays his own uh, philosophy and his own words against him. And, and when she asks him, why? why can't you turn your disadvantage into an advantage? And uh, like, it's just so well played. You can see, you can see it hit. And part of it is, it's just a, a wonderful scene for him um, as they all are. Uh, no, I just, it's nicely played. Agreed. Yeah. I think this is uh, a well-written scene where you, you hear both sides and then when she lays that bomb you're just like oh yeah that's the, she laid the perfect trap and you can see it immediately as his his kind of demeanor changes he makes it like a little shake of his head that he hadn't considered it from that angle and he's like oh interesting and then you're right he gets that confidence back he gets that swagger back um but it's got a nice another great joke uh with uh, data as interpreter here where uh he says thank you in sign language and then data says thank me thank you oh, th oh thank me Ah, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Brent Spiner, uh, making it work. Um, and then, uh, they go back to the, uh, the table that had been so immac immaculately, uh, beamed there. And it ends kind of on that nice little note of, of the two factions sitting close together, trying to communicate, uh, through sign language, teaching them this shared language, uh, that the three parties can use together as the only way that they can communicate and, do we even, we don't see them, do we? It ends with Rivas by himself, just standing there waiting. Oh, maybe that's just right. Correct. Then. I always had that image. Of, of. Yeah, I think he's just waiting. It was like, they didn't want to bring back the, that. Is makeup. that your fan <laughs> fiction, Greg? That's my fan fiction. Yeah, it's a, it's this <laughs> large pull-up shot. Literally, is that not in there? I thought it was. <laughs> it's not in there. <laughs> He just stands by himself at the table. Well, in my head, there's a crane shot that goes up forever. And then you see him like sitting there doing sign language with these two people. <laughs> All the way yeah, back right. to the Enterprise. It's a drone shot. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then we get uh, Picard giving a nice commendation to Troy. You know, I, I, I've come to love these as the buttons of, of these episodes where he just singles out a crew member and just says, good job. I love that. She yeah. Was blushing. Yeah. It and they ended on her just like, well, 
Thank you. Kick it to heart. It was it's really sweet. Really sweet. Yeah. Um, so that is it. That is loud as a whisper. I uh, I won't say this is my favorite Star Trek episode uh, and, the, and the performances out there, uh, but I want to hear from what the three of you think as your final thoughts. Eric, what do you think about this episode? I think I'm going to give it a negative three Wesley Crushers, which <laughs> then through the transitive property becomes a plus four all total. Um, <laughs> because we, again, didn't have a whole lot of Wesley. True. Uh, that's about the only huge positive I have in this beyond how he's performing. Uh, this fighting words with Kate. Wow. Now I couldn't come up with really a feeling about this one beyond the performance of the central guest star. I thought he was fantastic. Um, I, I thought most of the, the plot tropes beyond the uh, dealing with that character were pretty basic and boring. The aliens didn't offer much, uh, and, and you know we only got a little bit of physical comedy from Mister Data. So I wasn't all that happy with it, but I'll give it a four out of ten. You know, not not the worst we've seen, uh, and a really solid performance at the middle of it. Kate, final thoughts on Loud as a Whisper? Uh, I'm going to give it five and a half Anarchies of Lust, <laughs> um, and 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 so much of that has to do with that performance, the, the, how high that is, because in general I think that. The episode's kind of a mess uh, from an editing standpoint. There's weird jump cuts. There's a, a moment we didn't talk about where um, when they first arrive at the planet, uh, Riker is with Pulaski on the on on the right. uh, deck. And then the guys come in and Pulaski's just gone. Like there's just stupid little edits, stupid little weird things. Um, and that guy was so smarmy. It just creeped me out. But I love the concept of this episode. Uh, like Jimmy, I am fascinated by the chorus. And like Eric, I'm in love with that performance. So uh, so it it's right there in the middle for me. Jimmy, what do you think? Uh, another bad edit when uh, Picard walks into... The conference room where Revis is standing after the chorus dies. Uh, it's a bad edit because there's no way Patrick Stewart would have called a deaf man's name out to a <laughs> deaf man. And there's no way that that deaf actor would have turned around. Uh, but they shot, they they edited it so it looked like Picard says Reva and he mm -hmm. turns around um, at the sound of his name, supposedly. But uh, I would give this episode, I think, six stage whispers. And that is entirely uh, based on the unrealized potential of the life of the chorus. Like that, I still might write my own fan fiction on what it's like to be picked as one of the chorus members in the life, you know, becoming one and how you train to be one in the life of being one once you're picked. And then, uh, you know, like, how do you retire? I, I just, I love the idea of, of that and i think it's very sci-fi so jimmy, six for that jimmy have i recommended the the book uh ambassador town to you yeah but i'm writing yeah. it down it's it's dealing with similar characters by uh china mayville right i think you'd like it got it yeah so six uh six stage whispers um and i you know should you watch it yeah you i, I think it I, I, I'm going to lean more towards the uh, you know negative uh, side. I'm going to give it four 
muscle body suits that I learned in Wesley Crusher's performance, they all wore underneath their uniforms. Uh, <laughs> it's really amazing. Uh, yeah, kind of. A, uh, I love the concept. I love the idea of the chorus as well. Um, I, I, that symbolism of of different pe- parts of people's psyche being represented as characters is a really cool meta idea that I love, uh, and I wish was played with more. Um, but the, I honestly don't really enjoy uh, Howie's performance in this very much. I think he chose too much uh, stoicism early. Uh, we talked about why he did that, but it still just put me off him so that even when he does have that transition, I appreciate it, but it, it, it feels like I was already put off by this character to start with, and I never really got that back, uh, despite um, you know the few scenes that were, where he is really emotive. And it, uh, you know, it's got a lot of weird extraneous scenes that don't really add up to a lot. Uh, so I, that's why I'm giving it for um, strong on sci-fi ideas. And I too want to uh, be the wacky part of someone's psyche and just do that uh, for the rest of my life. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you all of you for being here with me, of course, and talking about this. Uh, next week, we've got the schizoid man, uh, which uh, already... I want to know more about, but too bad because my pants are all wet. <laughs> Thanks for joining our cultural bridge officers for this episode of Re-Engage. Next week, we are continuing the mission with another episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. We want to hear from our listeners. If you've got questions or observations, hailing frequencies are open. You can email letsreengage at gmail.com or if you're more social media minded, follow Reengage on Instagram and Twitter at reengagetng to get updates on episode drops and all kinds of fun. Eric Grattan emails the best way to ask him a question. Follow Kate Yeager at Yeagerlicious on Twitter and Instagram. Jimmy G is Jimmy at the Jimmy G on Instagram. Greg Tito is Greg Tito on Twitter and at Greg underscore Tito on Instagram. Reengage is edited and mixed by Krista Curry, Krista from Glee on Twitter, and Krista.curry on Instagram. Logo artwork by MojoJojo97 on Twitter, or you can find her at Mojo97.com. And our theme music is by the incomparable Ryan Marth. Thanks for listening. Stand by for Riker's Beard to Reengage.